Friday night got a text from from um, Barbie in, in Mexico sharing with me that the mother of of our sponsor child and the Daltons um, also sponsor one of her children. The mother, um, her name is Guadalupe. Uh, she uh, on Friday evening uh, prayed to receive Christ, and. Uh, and this is someone that we've been praying for since we met that family years ago. And, and, and really, uh, uh, someone that may be in the community that just like, you know, one of those people that like, I don't know if she ever will, you know. And, um, and yesterday at the men's uh, retreat, which was fantastic, by the way, for those of you who were there, you know that. For those who weren't, you missed out. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, someone was sharing with me yesterday that they have a child that they're not giving up on. And uh, I encourage you not to give up. Keep praying. God is working even when we don't see it. Amen? Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for this time. What a gift it is, as it's already been stated, that we get to come together like this. And God, we thank you so much that, that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to be our Savior. We thank you so much that you gave us your Word and that you speak to us through this word, that it's, it's alive, and it changes our lives. God, I pray that this morning that you would speak to us as we take a, another look at your servant, Elijah. God, we pray that this wouldn't just be some sort of historical exercise where we learn some cool stories, but rather that you would speak to each of our hearts and challenge us right where we're at. We want to live with the type of faith that we see evidenced in in Elijah's life. And uh, we just thank you again for this privilege of being here. We pray these things in the name of your son Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, last week, we began... Oh, by the way, can I just get the obvious out of the way? I am Chris Blanche. Um, It's still me. Um, (laughs) I've had like four or five people say this morning, like, oh, I didn't recognize you with the, with the glasses. Oh, I didn't, dude, how long have you worn glasses? And I'm like, oh, since I was like 12, um, I've been wearing, but I wear contacts, you know, I'm one of those cool people, you know, so um, not cool enough to get the LASIK surgery people, but I wear contacts normally, and, uh, but, but today I'm sporting the, 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 the glasses, so that's, it's still me. Um, so last week we began this whole series looking at the life of Elijah the prophet. And as we began the series, I stressed uh, the importance of us remembering that Elijah was just a man. I hope you got that last week, that Elijah was a man just like us. And we read from James chapter 5, uh, verse 17, where it says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was human, right? Elijah struggled with the same types of things that we struggle with. And although it is tempting for us to want to put him sort of up on a pedestal, right? He's one of the elites. You know, him and Billy Graham, right? We need to remember that what made Elijah special was his faithfulness to the all-powerful God, right? That's what made Elijah special. He followed the Lord and he walked in obedience And the Lord worked through him and used him to do remarkable things. And I think that's encouraging. I I heard from somebody this week that said it's sort of encouraging because that means that he could do the same through me, right? And that's what I was hoping that you would feel as you walked out last week. 
So we're going to begin uh, this morning. I just want to just briefly recap what we covered last week in chapter 17 for those who missed it, um, and also by way of reminder for the rest of us. So Elijah comes onto the scene uh, at a time in Israel's history when the nation was in a rapid state of spiritual decline. They were moving away from the worship of Yahweh, the true and living God, and they were embracing the worship of other foreign gods like like uh, Baal and, and, and Asherah. And uh, as I mentioned last week, um, Baal was the, what, well, what they believed to be the, the storm god, the god of rain, right? And so they're worshiping this god Baal, and this is at the time that God sends Elijah. And uh, under, under the reign of King Ahab, who, according to chapter 16 uh, of 1 Kings, Ahab was a wicked king. In fact, he did more evil than any of the kings before him and provoked the Lord to anger more than any before him. And under King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they had built a temple in Samaria. So in the land of Israel, right? I mean, remember Israel, right? This is the, the people that God had, had rescued out of Egypt, right? And gave them this land and and now, in the land, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they've set up a temple for Baal in Israel, in Samaria. That's the context. And so in chapter 17, God sends Elijah to Samaria with a message for this wicked king Ahab and the people of Israel. And he tells them that there's not going to be any rain or any dew in the land but by the word of Elijah. See, God was sending judgment on Israel for their idolatry, and it's something that he had promised that he would do to them if they were to go after other gods. And uh, I think I mentioned last week that, that the, whole, the fact that God chose a drought as, as the punishment was a direct shot at this god Baal that they were worshiping, right? Because he was the god of little g, god of rain. And so God delivers this message through, through Elijah. And then God tells Elijah, after he's done this, you know, delivered this message, he said, it's time for you to get out of town, right? God sends Elijah to go live by the brook Cherith, which was just east of the Jordan River. And while Elijah was there, God provided for him. If you remember right, it's pretty cool. He was bringing him bread and meat every day, twice a day, by ravens. Right, And then he provided water for him to drink from the brook. And we talked about the fact that not only was God, not only was God protecting Elijah out at this brook from Ahab and Jezebel who were hunting for him, right? But he was growing Elijah by placing him in a situation where he was totally dependent upon the Lord. He had to totally rely on God for his food and his water, and to take care of him there by the brook. And then after some time passed, the brook dried up, right? And God said, okay, now it's time for you to go and travel 80 plus miles northwest to a town called Zarephath, a town that was located in an area that was controlled by Jezebel's father, the king of the Sidonians. So God was leading Elijah into enemy territory where he would deepen Elijah's understanding of God's provision 
as well as God's protection. And God told Elijah that while he was in Zarephath, instead of being fed by ravens, now God was going to provide for Elijah through a Gentile widow. And I didn't even mention this last week, but it is interesting that God chose to feed Elijah by ravens, which were an unclean animal, right? And then he's sending him, he's now going to provide for him by a Gentile widow. This just doesn't even make sense, right? But God has shown that he has the ability, he can provide for his people through even things which the, you know, we would consider detestable, that God would provide for him. Well, this widow, she was on the brink of starvation. You can remember that. And, and she was challenged to take a huge step of faith when she was to use the last of her resources to, to make a meal for, for Elijah. And she did. And God not only, not only did God provide Elijah something to eat, but then God miraculously provided for her and her son and Elijah uh, an unending supply of flour and oil that would not run out until the drought was over. Pretty amazing, right? Well, then at the end of chapter 17, tragedy struck, right? Terribly sad situation. I had another person tell me last week, I was just like, had to read ahead because you were taking too long to get there and then see what happened. And uh, she's, like, she's like, my heart was breaking for this poor mother, you know, carrying her, her dead son to Elijah. And Elijah took the boy in his arms and he takes him upstairs to where he'd been staying and he prays over the boy and he asks God to do what? To bring the boy back to life. Remarkable request considering the fact that there'd never been a resurrection in scripture before this point. But Elijah has the boldness to ask God to please bring him back to life. And the text says that the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again. Amazing, right? Chapter 17, um, the whole thing, is just one story after another of God leading Elijah one step at a time, building his faith and preparing him for things to come. Which leads us now to chapter 18. And I told you last week, I said, man, I think it just gets better. I mean, this story just gets better. So we're going to pick up this morning in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1 says, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, Show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now, we know from the verses we looked at last week in James, uh, James chapter 5, and also from Jesus' words in Luke chapter 4, that the total length of this drought was three years and six months, three and a half years. So it's been three and a half years now since Elijah announced this judgment on Israel. Three and a half years with no rain and no dew, right? Water supplies are drying up, right? Crops have failed. Livestock are perishing and people are starving. There's a terrible famine in the land. So now, here at the beginning of, of chapter 18, God says to Elijah, it's time to bring the drought to an end. This is good news, right? This is exciting. Now, we're going to get to this later in the text, 
But you need to know that God sending Elijah to Ahab as the, as the condition to end the drought, that's a tall ask. Why? Because Ahab is, has been hunting for Elijah. Elijah is a wanted man. They've been hunting for him everywhere, but God has been protecting him. So when God tells him to go and appear there, it's no small thing that Elijah takes this step of faith and does what the Lord is calling him to do. Verse 2 simply says that Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. God said, go. So he went. You know, it makes me wonder if I have that type of faith. Do you? I want to live my life in such a way that when God says go, I go, right? When God says do this, that's what I do, right? And I do it by faith because I believe that the Lord has called me to do it. And when I do that, I can then be prepared to live with the consequences, right, of whatever that decision is, because I've made that decision by faith. Does that make sense? Why would Elijah just step out and do this? Because he believed that God called him to do it. And so God is sending him back to his greatest enemy to declare something. I don't know if God's told him the whole story yet, but he said, we're going to send you back to Ahab, and then the drought's going to end. That's a huge step of faith for Ahab. So he leaves Zarephath and he makes his way towards Samaria. And the text says that this famine was really severe. I would imagine so, right? Three and a half years with no rain. I mean, man, we like freak out, right? In our country, like you have a few dry months, right? In the Southwest and... You know, I used to live in Albuquerque, and, and like you'd get fined if you watered your lawn. Although I don't even know why you have a lawn if you live in Albuquerque, right? Um, I mean, they're beautiful, but it, it's the desert. So, um, but anyway, droughts are very real. But for three and a half years, I imagine it is pretty severe. Verse 3 says, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. And then we get this, like, this, this uh, description here in parentheses. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So we're introduced now to this man named Obadiah. And his name means servant of the Lord. It's a good name because a servant of the Lord he was. The text says that that Obadiah hid 100 of the Lord's prophets in caves and provided them food and water when Jezebel was hunting them down and killing the prophets of God. Verse 3 says that verse 3 says that Obadiah was the manager of of Ahab's household, his palace. He was over the household. Obadiah used his position and risked his own life by secretly going behind Jezebel's back and protecting the Lord's prophets in caves and providing food and water for them to drink. 
all in the midst of a, of a drought. Pretty amazing, right? Pretty risky. You know, I've actually heard some people um, refer to Obadiah as maybe being a coward because, because he wasn't as bold as Elijah with his faith. And I just want to point out that I think that Elijah and Obadiah had two different missions. Can we agree with that? And that God doesn't call everybody to the same mission. God had Elijah confronting Ahab, and then actually he called Obadiah, in, I mean, excuse me, uh, Elijah, he calls Ob- uh, Elijah into hiding, right? For three and a half years, where's Elijah been? Hiding. Where's Obadiah been? In the household of the enemy, you know? So don't ask Obadiah to do what Elijah's called to do, and don't ask Elijah to do what Obadiah's called to do. Amen? Pretty powerful stuff. And I don't know about you, but I love the fact that God placed his servant Obadiah in such an influential position in the household of one of the most wicked kings who ever lived. Isn't that cool that God placed Obadiah there? And I believe that God still puts Obadiah's servants of the Lord in key positions today. You know, you might be sitting here, maybe you are an Obadiah who's been placed in a key position where you are. Do you see it that way? I believe it's our privilege, and I believe it's our responsibility to pray that we and they, those Obadiahs, would have the courage to serve the Lord where God has placed them. Amen? Well, verse 5 says, And Ahab said to this guy, Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive. It's concerned more about the animals than the people, it appears. We don't want to lose some of the animals, he says in verse 5. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in in another direction by himself. So the drought is so bad in Israel that you have the king of Israel himself, Ahab, out looking for water and and grass where his animals can graze. That's not probably something normally the king would do, right? But they're desperate. These are really desperate times. So he he and Obadiah, they split up and they go in different directions. And verse 7 says, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. Obadiah can't believe his eyes, right? He cannot believe his eyes. It's Elijah, the the one that Ahab has been hunting everywhere for. Ahab's been searching all over the place for this, and now here this guy's out looking for green grass, and who does he run into? Elijah, who probably is one of his heroes, right? And so he says, is it really you? You've got to be kidding me. I cannot believe I'm face-to-face with Elijah. And Elijah, not big on, you know, he's got, he's got the small talk thing going really quick here, right? He's like, I, I, we don't have time to talk. I'm on a mission. It is me. Now go tell Ahab that I'm here. Well, this this request sends Obadiah like right over the edge. Okay, this I love this this whole scene because 
Obadiah completely freaks out, okay? So let's just read Obadiah's response. So you go tell Ahab I'm here. This is good news, right? Because Ahab's been looking for Elijah. So you would think Obadiah would be excited, but he's not. Verse 9, he says, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. Obadiah says, Elijah, Ahab has been hunting everywhere for you. <laughs> and when they would say he's not here, he would, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. He would make them under oath say, are you sure he's not here? Swear? Yes, I swear he's not here. He thought they were hiding him, right? And now, verse 11, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. <laughs> Obadiah says, I know what's going to happen, and you do too. I'm going to go tell Ahab that you're here, and this is what's going to happen. God's going to whisk you off to some other place. And then Elijah, I mean, excuse me, and then, uh, Ahab is going to think that I lied to him, and then what? And so when I come and tell Ahab that he cannot find you, he will kill me. And then he goes like, then he, then he like said, you don't understand, Elijah. I, I, I'm on your side here. He goes on, he says, uh, where am I? Oh yeah, right here, right in the middle of verse uh, 12. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Verse 13, has it not been told, my Lord? In other words, haven't you heard, Elijah, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. He's going to kill me. Right? That's amazing. Obadiah has lost his marbles here. He is just totally freaking out. You know, Obadiah was really brave when he hid the... When he hid the um, the hundred prophets in the caves, right? Pretty brave move. <laughs> but when Elijah says, go tell Ahab that I'm here, this brave man just loses his mind. But I think that just goes to show how severe the hatred was from Ahab and Jezebel towards Elijah. This is not just some prophet, right? This is the one that they want the most. Nobody do they want dead more than Elijah. Obadiah says, man, you don't understand how crazy Ahab is about finding you. He's obsessed. And if you're not here, he's going to kill me. Well, again, Elijah, who really, I mean, this guy talks a lot. Um, <laughs> appreciate his brevity. It reminds me of our Pastor Glenn. If you've ever sent Glenn a text, you know you're lucky if you get two letters back. If you get OK, that's good. If you get K is the normal. <laughs> OK. <laughs> so I appreciate his brevity. Well, Elijah also is very brief here. Verse 15, Elijah says, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Elijah says, Obadiah, breathe. <laughs> Relax. I'm not going anywhere. 
As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. This whole scene reminds me, if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride, you you know the scene where the man in black is climbing the rope, excuse me, he's climbing the cliffs to get to the top, and Inigo is waiting for him to get to the top, you know the scene? Okay, so he's waiting at the top, he's getting kind of impatient, like this is taking forever for you to get up here so we can have a duel to the death. And so he's waiting, and he says, could you hurry up? And he's like, you know, it's tough, climbing cliffs and all that. He said, I could throw you a rope. And the man in black is like, well, I don't trust it. If you throw me a rope, you'll just cut the rope, and I fall to my death, right? So he doesn't trust it. And the guy says, well, is there anything that I can do to convince you to trust me? And he's, the man in black is like, well, nothing comes to mind, right? <laughs> and then Inigo says, I swear on the soul of my father. <laughs> and then, and then what, is, what is his name, the father's name? What is it? Inigo Montoya is the son. What's the father's name? Oh, they do say it. He swear on the name of my father, da 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 Montoya. Okay. That was ultimate Princess Bride, Princess Bride trivia, and I and all of you just failed. So, oh, we're big Princess Bride fans here. We all failed. But anyway, he says, I swear on my father. Okay? Something Domingo Montoya. And, um, and then the man in black who's hanging from the cliff says, Throw me the rope. All right, you got that part. I heard that. Throw me the rope. So it's like, whoa, you swore on your father. Throw me the rope. It's almost like that right here, right? Obadiah is freaking out, and and Elijah says, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will show myself to him today. And Obadiah says, Throw me the rope. You know? He's, I'll go. So he takes off. Verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Isn't it interesting how Ahab greets Elijah? Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Israel. I find it fascinating that Ahab takes no personal responsibility whatsoever for the troubles that Israel is suffering. He blames the whole thing on Elijah. And so Elijah says, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Ahab had completely abandoned the worship of God and he had led the people of Israel into the worship of Baal. His wife was busy hunting down and killing the prophets. For three and a half years, Israel's been under God's judgment and rather than repent, Ahab stubbornly refuses to acknowledge his sins and he puts all the blame on Elijah. Just a side note. But when you follow the Lord and you do the things that He's calling you to do, this is actually a pretty common reaction from the world. Elijah is the troubler of Israel. In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is accused of being possessed. Remember that? Jesus, the Son of God, must be possessed. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus' followers were accused of turning the world upside down. 
when you when you seek to follow God, you can expect that this will be the world's reaction. But remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You know, it's a, it's a response that you should expect. Now make sure that the reason they hate you is because you're actually following God, not because you're just belligerent, right? Because you can do that as well. But if you know that you're doing what God's called you to do, as Elijah knew he was doing what God called him to do, he could with confidence say, this isn't on me, this is on you, Ahab. In verse 19, he says, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That whole idea of eating at Jezebel's table is just showing that this was a government-sponsored idolatry that they had sponsored these pagan idols. And Elijah says, Gather everybody together at Mount Carmel and bring the people, bring the prophets of Baal, bring the prophets of Asherah. We're going to settle this and we're going to see who the true and living God really is. So in verse 20, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. You know, I really believe the fact that he went and did it shows that Ahab was confident of how this was going to end. That, that, that the people were going to come and the prophets of Baal were going to come. And I think that Ahab really believed that Baal was going to show up. And I think he really believed that once and for all, the people would turn on Elijah and that would be the end of this troubler of Israel. Boy, was he wrong. The Mount Carmel Range here is a series of rolling hills that run for about 30 miles southeast away from the Mediterranean Sea with its highest peak, uh, peak reaching nearly uh, 1,800 feet above sea level. It's situated, as you can see on the map, hopefully, it's situated along the southern side of the Jezreel Valley. It was a perfect location for the people to all gather. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people gathered there to watch this, this showdown between the prophets of Baal and, uh, and Elijah. Verse 21 says, And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. The word that Elijah uses in verse 21 that the ESV translates as limping can also be translated as wavering or leaping or dancing. It's the same word that's used in verse 26 to describe how the prophets of Baal were moving around the altar that they had made. Elijah basically is saying, how long are you going to keep dancing between these two positions? How long are you going to waver? How long are you going to keep shifting from one side to another? You need to pick a side. If the Lord is God... Follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. When I read that challenge from Elijah, I am forced to evaluate my own life. Am I fully devoted to God? Or 
Am I dancing between two positions? And don't be too quick to answer that. Don't be too quick. Because see, you, you may not worship a pagan god named Baal. And I may not worship some pagan god like Asherah. But there are a lot of other idols that we have erected in our lives that compete for our devotion, aren't there? And God knows that. He knows where your heart truly is devoted. And I believe that what God speaks to the people through Elijah, He would speak to you and I today. How long will you waver between these two positions? I want all of your devotion. I want all of you. Does He have it? If the Lord is God... Follow him. And then Elijah said to the people, verse 22, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah looks around and he says, it's 450 to one today. 450 prophets of Baal and just me as a prophet of the Lord. It's worth noting that apparently the 400 prophets of Asherah decided not to show up. He, they were invited Probably a good thing they didn't show up if you know the end of the story. Good for them. Verse 23, Elijah says, Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now again, they believed that Baal was the storm god. Surely he could bring a little lightning, right? He hadn't brought rain for three and a half years. I don't know why they would have any confidence. Verse 25, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of, uh, name of your god, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. They're dancing around the altar, crying out to Baal, answer us, Baal, answer us, for hours, right? You got to admire at least their commitment, right? Hours have gone by. They're crying out to him. 27, and at noon, <clears throat> Elijah mocked them. Um, by the way, i uh, just throw this out. Um, this is my biblical justification for sarcasm. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> sarcasm can be used in, in, in a way that it shouldn't. You can hurt people and tear people down. But apparently there is a time when it's okay. And it's okay right here. So at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, Cry aloud! You're not loud enough, for he is a god. Either he's musing, maybe he's meditating, or he's deep in thought, or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. (laughs) Can you just imagine him yelling this out? This is amazing, right? He's taunting them. Or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. You're not loud enough. You need to wake him up. Elijah taunts the prophets of Baal, sarcasm dripping from every word. 
And Elijah knows full well, right? He knows full well there's nothing that they can do that's going to change the situation. Baal is not going to answer them. Why? Because Baal doesn't exist, right? Elijah knows this, but the prophets of Baal, they don't give up. Instead, verse 28, they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. This would be three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the time when the, in, in Jerusalem, when the, the, uh, the time of the evening sacrifice. So from morning until new, uh, noon, they cried out. And then from noon to three, they're continuing to cry out. But now they're cutting themselves in blood, gushing out, trying to call upon to get the attention of their God. I'm so glad that we have a God that has made the way possible that we can come before him just in prayer. Amen. I don't have to cut myself and drip blood to come before the God of the universe. His son already did that to make it possible. Amen. But this whole scene highlights something really important. It's possible to be very sincere and to be sincerely wrong. These prophets of Baal were sincere. They were committed. And I really believe that they thought that Baal would answer them. But at the end of the day, unless your prayers are directed to the true and living God, there is no one listening. There was no voice, it says at the end of verse 29. No one answered. No one paid attention. For hours upon hours, the prophets of Baal have done everything they can to get Baal to answer them, but the text says no one was listening. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Evidently, there had been an altar to the Lord on Mount Carmel that had been torn down, and so Elijah repairs it. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. You see, even though the nation at this time was divided, we talked about this last week, that you had, you had the ten tribes in the north called Israel, and you had the two tribes in the south called Judah. Even though they were divided, Elijah reminds them that they, all twelve tribes, are God's people. Israel. Verse 32, And with the stones he, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed, which is about three or four gallons, okay? And so he digs this trench around the, around the altar that would hold three to four gallons of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, I am no expert at building a fire. <laughs> my wife will tell you that. In our house, that title definitely belongs to my wife. Um, and if you've been at our house or around the fireplace or you've been camping with my wife, you know she loves to be the one working on the fire and stoking it. And if it's not starting, it's more of a challenge. Like, she just gets excited about this. But 
I do know this. When you want to start a fire, pouring water on top of the wood to the point where it is soaked, and you have three or four gallons of water around the base of the fire, is not the normal approach, right? Can we agree with that? But in this instance, in this instance, I mean, again, we talked about this last week, God is flexing, right, at this moment. This is just like, God's like, it's easy to start a fire with dry wood. Check this out, Elijah, have him, have him, have him soak this thing to the point where there's gallons of water all around the base, then watch. Elijah is using this whole thing to emphasize the point that Yahweh, the true and living God of Israel, is an all-powerful God. Verse 36 says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah's prayer is that the people would know that Yahweh is the true and living God of Israel. This whole thing, everything about this is all about God's glory. Elijah wants the people to know that this isn't about him. It's not about me. He says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. I'm just a servant. And I've done all these things at your word. I'm so glad he included that because it might be tempting to think that Elijah dreamt this whole thing up. He came up with all this whole idea, right? No, this is all coming. He's just obeying what the Lord is revealing to him. This entire showdown with the prophets of Baal is coming directly from the Lord. Elijah is just the Lord's servant, walking by faith and obedience to God. His desire is for the Lord to be glorified and worshipped in Israel. And I think, you know, when I read, like for me, this prayer, this prayer is like, for me, it's the most important important piece of this whole chapter. It's a prayer that I think that, that, that each of us should pray. It's a prayer that we would want to be able to mark at the beginning of every day, at the beginning of every decision that we make. We should be able to pray, God, let it be known this day that you are God and that I am your servant and I've done these things at your word. But can we say that? It's a great prayer, but the only way that we can say that is if we've actually sought Him and had Him reveal to us what we're supposed to do. Can we really say, I did this at your word, Lord? Or are we just kind of coasting through? My heart's desire for me and for you is that we be able to look and say like, man, yes, today God, yes, I'm doing this because this is what you called me to do. And it's not about bringing me glory. I'm just your servant. I want them to know that you are Lord and that you are turning their hearts back. Amen? It's a great prayer. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Nothing left. Nothing left. This fire was so intense 
to intense that, that it, it consumed even every last drop of water that was gathered around that fire, uh, that, that, uh, that altar. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What an amazing thing to hear, right? Can you imagine being there and hearing them crying out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There was no denying who the true and living God was that day. In verse 40 says, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is exactly how uh, God's people were instructed to deal with the false prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 13. You can read that in Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 5. Jezebel had been determined to purge the prophets of Yahweh from the land, but on that day, it was the evil of Baal worship that was being purged from Israel. Verse 41 says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. And so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. With the contest over, Elijah tells Ahab that the rain is coming and he can now return to his eating and drinking. Elijah, however, went to the top of the mountain where he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees and he prayed for the rain. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. Again, you could see the, sea, the Mediterranean Sea from anywhere on top of the, of the Carmel Range. You could see the Mediterranean Sea. He says, look to the sea. And he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. Elijah bowed his face and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed for God to send the rain. Six times, six times he sends his servant to the check for signs of the coming of rain. And six times he comes back and he says, I don't see anything. But on the seventh time, Elijah prayed and the servant checked. And in verse 44, it says, in the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he, Elijah, said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. See, Elijah's servant sees just a little cloud forming on the horizon. He tells Elijah, he's like, that's enough. It's coming. The rain is coming and you better tell Ahab to get out of here or they're not going to make it, right? This is a big storm coming. Verse 45 says, In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Roughly like anywhere, well, depending on where they were at on the Mount Carmel range, we're talking like maybe 15 to 25 miles that Elijah had to run to Jezreel. And apparently he beat the horses, which is pretty cool, right? Talk about an athlete in action, right? (laughs) Last week we saw in James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The drought was over. The prophets of Baal were defeated, and Yahweh was shown to be the only true and living God, the Lord of Israel. And as the chapter comes to a close, Ahab and his chariots are making their way to Jezreel, trying to beat the rain. Elijah is running by foot 
to get there. And you would think that after chapter 17 and chapter 18, you'd be like, this guy's faith must have been so strong. There's nothing on earth that could stop this guy, right? I mean, he, he has seen such miraculous moves of God. What, what, could possibly, what could possibly stop Ahab in his tracks? And if you show up next week, we're going to look at chapter 19. And again, you can read ahead, but it doesn't take too long to find out that Ahab was a man just like us. And he experienced fears just like we do. And uh, we'll get into that next week uh, when we look at chapter 19. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the power that you displayed on Mount Carmel that day. That you demonstrated not only for those who were gathered there, but you've demonstrated for everybody who's read these words since then. That you are the true God. That all the other idols that we resurrect in our lives and we, 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 set up these, we set up these idols, they're powerless. God, I pray that you would forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us for the ways that, that we put other things before you and we dance between these different positions. God, you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy of all of our worship. You're, you're worthy of all of our lives to be devoted to you. Forgive us, God. God, give us faith to live like Elijah. God, give us faith to, to walk in obedience the way he did. That you said go and he went. God, I pray that we would do that. And I pray that as we do it, we would live with the type of confidence that Elijah had. That no matter what the consequences might be, we are okay with it because we're walking by faith and going where you've called us to go and doing what you've called us to do. We love you, Jesus. And we worship you. And we give our lives to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.